Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu lcsi. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Welcome to MindShift, the podcast about the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Ki Sung. And I'm Nima Gobier. Since the protests last summer, schools across the country are addressing racism in their own ways. Changing their names, sending out statements of solidarity, or looking at inequity in their own classrooms. Some schools are just beginning to address race, but one school district in Florida appears to be ahead of the curve. We're looking at Broward County Public School District and how they got everyone to take a hard look at their problems and talk about race. Buckle up, because we're going to get a little nitty-gritty this episode, but you're going to learn how to have the conversations that make most people squirm. First, some context. Broward is the sixth largest district in the nation. It contains 31 cities in Florida. It's racially and culturally diverse, including students from almost every country in the world, speaking over 100 different languages, which comes with its own challenges. I'm an older white guy doing this work. Gary Blandina is an autism coach and behavioral specialist. It's a job with many hats, one of which is assessing students' behavior to see if they need additional support. I was called in to observe a a black girl in a fourth grade classroom. He was told the student had lots of behavioral issues and that teachers were concerned. So Blandina went to observe the student on two different occasions. And I had a write-up that she looks fine. She was on point, she was answering, she was squirmy in her chair, but that's not a crime. Blandina noticed that black and brown kids were getting disproportionately disciplined. That is not that uncommon. Across the country, certain young people, black, Hispanic, and Native American, face harsher punishments than their white peers. In Broward County, they began looking at their data in earnest in 2011, when they got a new superintendent they found that Black students made up two-thirds of all suspensions, even though they were only 40% of the student body. The district was also failing Black and Brown students when it came to academics. Here's Dan Gole, the chief academic officer. Some of it manifested itself in the uh, distribution of academic scores on assessments from the state. They were seeing gaps between who was placed in their AP classes and who was graduating, and even who was learning to read faster. Students need to have pivoted from learning to read to reading independently. That is, learning to read to reading to learn by that third grade point. Third grade reading scores are used to predict long-term academic success. And though disputed, some link these reading scores to how likely a child is to commit a crime. And, well, they were having a lot of incidents. In 2013, Broward County had the highest school-related student arrest rate in Florida out of 67 districts. 
Dan thinks that the differences between white students and students of color might have to do with who's doing the teaching and who's doing the learning. There are racial disparities in the profile of our teaching force as compared to our student body. Again, this reflects national data. According to a report released a few years ago, 79% of teachers were white, even as the majority of students attending public schools have been children of color. So there's already a cultural difference between the folks who are ensuring that the behaviors are what I expect, and when you don't act that way, I label it as misbehavior. Racial divisions have intensified since the Parkland shootings, which occurred in Broward County and killed 17 people and wounded 17 others. Even though at first glance, the shootings don't seem to have anything to do with race whatsoever, some people in the community felt differently. Here's journalist Scott Travis, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage during that tragic time. That was an incident that the school district and probably the community as a whole has not been able to recover from. What we don't usually hear about was the shooting at Dillard High School, a predominantly black school in Fort Lauderdale in 2008. After one person was killed, things went on business as usual. Now, one could argue that there's a difference between a school shooting involving 17 people and one that involves one, you know, as far as the enormity. But there's a, a belief that we, and uh, some people in the black community, that we as a community value these lives more than the ones at uh, predominantly black schools. Essentially, there were doubts about whose education and lives were valued. The district elected a diversity committee to address the lack of trust, something most schools are trying right now. But you can't just do it by creating an office that says, OK, now you have this office on racial equity or diversity and inclusion. This is David Watkins, the Broward County Director of Equity and Diversity. Um, it requires the support and prioritization of all the stakeholders that hold positions of power within the organization. And that has to extend to the community. When their diversity committee wasn't working as well as they'd hoped, that's when then-Superintendent Runcie tried something new. As a side note, he's no longer at Broward County. In 2021, he resigned amid a messy court case about school tech contracts. But while he was in office, Runcie figured out a way to address the problem. One of the things he did was he was one of the first to bring Glenn Singleton um, and the work of Courageous Conversations to the district for the schools and for educators to get an understanding of how race can be central to outcomes for all children and how race can be central to improving conditions for all children, ultimately. Courageous Conversations. It's a system that helps people deal with the discomfort of discussing race. It makes it so that that feeling you get when you start to talk about race, wanting to squirm or jump out of your body or leave the conversation, you know how to handle that. In schools, it can help teachers recognize, vocalize, and ultimately change how race is handled. And the program is based on the work of Glenn Singleton. For a significant portion of my life, I had been at that intersection where we needed to have a conversation, but we were not well equipped to do it. 
seeing educators paralyzed by the same scenario and their students trying to communicate things to them and the parents, you know, I knew that if I could just give them a way, which we call the protocol for courageous conversation, we'd find effectiveness. Singleton says the foundation of these conversations boils down to the protocol, which is like a roadmap to get you through tough conversations. It's not going to be a problem for people to take in. The whole protocol fits on one page. And now we're going to walk you through it. This is the nitty gritty part I was talking about. And it's totally worth it because you're going to learn how to become a productive part of conversations instead of melting into the wall behind you. And don't worry, we'll have a PDF ready for you at the end. Now, what you need to know is there are three main parts of the protocol. The agreements, the compass, and the conditions. We'll start with the agreements. The agreements are the rules for engagement for the conversation. Everyone needs to get on board with these things before the conversation even starts. And the number one agreement is stay engaged. Which means that um, we're going to not necessarily agree all the time. Um, and um, sometimes my enthusiasm or passion or my frustration or anger, that might cause you some discomfort, okay? And, and when that occurs, we stay connected. So when someone says something that freaks you out, like how an activity you did in class didn't land well, you don't check out. You stay present in the conversation and keep the dialogue open. The second agreement is experience discomfort. And that's because race uh, was put into the human experience for less than noble purpose. There was an agenda here to create value that is different for people who are white versus people who are not white. And, And that determination should make us uncomfortable. So if you want to squirm, go ahead and squirm. The fact that race is even a thing should make you feel a little bit squirrely, but make sure to stay in the conversation. The third agreement is speak your truth. You gotta speak, therein lies the conversation, and you've gotta connect to what's true for you. Speaking your truth means being honest about your thoughts, not just saying what you think others wanna hear. This helps people actually see where the other is coming from. And so to speak your truth, to share it, um, does not require that I agree with you. It requires, though, that I listen to you to understand what that truth is. And it requires that you know your truth. For example, a Black teacher might share with an administrator that their white colleagues get lots of opportunities, opportunities that the Black teacher is never offered. The administrator might not see it that way, but they can validate that experience without shutting the teacher down. The fourth and last agreement is to expect and accept non-closure. This conversation will not have a finality, a point at which there's no need for any more conversation about this topic, um, and that we accept that. That acceptance is not accepting racism, 
It's accepting that um, race is an evolving aspect of our society and, and we can solve for race in Broward County schools in some aspects of it, but you know, there's still racism surrounding that school building, that district in Florida, in this country. And so by solving for race in a moment, um, we haven't solved for race in the macro. And, and therefore we have to be available to what comes next. So those are the four agreements. Number one, stay engaged. Two, experience discomfort. Three, speak your truth. And four, expect and accept non-closure. I like to define them as the, the, the four walls in, in a room. They create the foundation so that we're safe to stand in that wall. You know, if you take away any of those walls, you have an integrity issue and, and you got to be careful. The next piece of the protocol is the compass. The compass helps you become aware of your own relationship to race, to your reactions, and to understand where other people's reactions are coming from. This helps you build mutual understanding. The compass, like most normal compasses, has four directions, which Glenn calls quadrants. They're the thinking, feeling, acting, and believing quadrants. If you're having a reaction to race, it's usually coming from one of the quadrants. Thinking is the intellectual one, where you pull information, data, stories, and analysis. Feeling is where emotional responses come from, like if you're reacting with anger, sadness, or disappointment. Believing is where your morals and sense of right and wrong sit, that belief that someone has crossed a line. Acting is about doing, taking steps to address and change things. If you think of these quadrants as representative of, you know, physical aspects of us, the, the thinking quadrant is the brain, it's the head. You know, the believing quadrant is the gut. It's where, it's where your deepest understandings, your beliefs and values are. The feeling quadrant's the heart, you know, and the acting quadrant's the hands and feet. So to repeat, we have the four agreements and now the compass, which includes thinking, believing, feeling, and acting which will help you name where reaction is coming from. Okay, you are doing so great, and I know you're excited to learn more, but it's time to take a sip of water because we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll dive into the final part of the protocol, a big old review, and then how Broward County uses these courageous conversations. See you in a bit. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too. 
at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Hope you had a nice break because it's time for the final part of the protocol, the conditions. They go in order. You need to do one before moving on to the next, and they're all about your understanding of race. Tier one is focusing on your own personal relationship with race. While we live lives with intersecting identities, for these conversations, you should focus on race specifically. What I understand personally, uh, what beliefs surface for me, you know, and, and racializing that and making sure that I use the racial terminology to describe it. First and foremost, my own as a black man, you know, and, and then what I see. Tier two is where we bring others into the conversation, along with all their perspectives, identities, and experiences. And the big task is keeping everyone at the table. The second tier is about surfacing as much information as we can get, recognizing that multiple perspectives actually fuel the conversation. And so you want to organize and get into conversation with people who don't necessarily share your beliefs or your feelings or your thinking. Because we're hearing how others think about race, the compass can be really handy. You can see how our approaches to race differ when people are reacting out of feeling or thinking, for example. Tier three broadens the idea of race to include systems of inequity. This is when you can start talking about the bigger picture around race. We're really talking about race as a system of power. And we're talking about, you know, how that power plays out and what is my relationship and all of us have a relationship to race as a system of power. So we have our agreements, the compass, and lastly, these three conditions. Understanding where you're coming from, then engaging with others, then digging into the inequities caused by racism. So Nima, can you run me through an example of a scenario where we might use this in the wild? I should say, you can try and use this at any time, but it's most effective between people who understand the protocols. So with that said, here's an example. Let's say I'm hoping to have my school change some of the books in their curriculum. I just learned kids' books will have the main character be an animal much more often than a kid of color. This is a true fact. And I want kids of color in my school to feel represented, so I sit down with teachers and administrators. We would start by literally agreeing to the four agreements as our foundation, and then we'll engage. We've gone through the training, so we already have some understanding of our own personal relationship to race in our lives. For example, I'm an Asian woman having this conversation about representation in books. Exactly. And I'm a Black woman bringing this topic to my colleagues. While we're discussing, we'll stay focused on race, so we won't stray to say how many girls are represented in our books, because that shifts the conversation towards gender and away from race. And gender is important, don't get me wrong, but just not for this particular conversation. So I might be in the thinking quadrant of the compass because I'm wondering, why wouldn't we talk about gender representation if we're trying to buy books that represent our students? That sometimes trips people up because we don't live single identity lives. Our identities intersect. However, we're centering race in this conversation first. Got it. So first, talk about race, allowing multiple points of view that might differ. And if we have tension, I can locate where my reactions are coming from on the compass, which you modeled for us. I might say, I'm in the feeling quadrant. I'm feeling very defensive because at one point I was a black girl who didn't see myself represented in these books. 
maybe I locate my other colleague in the believing quadrant because they think it's wrong to stray from classic books. And from there, we'll move to tier three, looking at the systemic issues of what happens when students do not see themselves represented in our school texts. Hopefully, we're able to reach next steps and add new books to the library, but the conversation may have lots of stopping points or pauses and may not end in closure. Mm, That sounds uncomfortable, but it's good to know that it's normal. Sure, and that's just a hypothetical. But let's turn to Broward County, which got a whole district on board with using Courageous Conversations. Teachers who are listening might roll their eyes, but Broward County rolled this out with a months-long Courageous Conversations program. One of the teachers in the first online cohort was Colton Griffith. One of the things that you do in the course is you do this racial autobiography and it make you really think about when, well, when did you really become first aware that you are the race you are and how does that impact you and how has that shaped your life going forward? And it's just things that I never really thought I had to reflect on until I, until I was made to. And it really just, I, I came out of it knowing myself better than I did. The activities from the course helped him see how his own racial experience shaped his schooling and now his teaching. To be able to talk to children and, and help guide them through things that are, that are confusing, much like my own childhood was confusing growing up in, in Broward County as an Indigenous student. So it was a very like lonesome experience. So I wanted to be able to, to have an effect on students who maybe are going through that, but also teaching elementary kids how can you even talk about these things, you know, like it's such a touchy subject. So going through creative conversations gives you that, that confidence. These are conversations that have to happen and especially to your students. So after the program, Colton started bringing courageous conversations into the classroom, opening up discussions about race with his fourth grade students. Good morning, Jair. Good morning. All right, guys. So we're going to read separate is never equal. And as I said, come on, sit down. As I said before, um, it's really the story about a Mexican family. All right. So real quick, they talked about the schools being segregated. What does that remind you guys of? Um, being separated? Um, like, no, like schools like, being... No. And it was really cool to be able to do that and, and then to, to then have those conversations with students. Like, what, why do you think, you know, these students felt that they had to do these sit-ins? And, uh, you know, that's not part of the curriculum. That's not going to show up on the FSA. Um, but also might not have had, I might not have felt emboldened to have those conversations if I hadn't gone through courageous conversations and, and, and really been made to feel that it's okay to do this. And across the district, other teachers found value in the program. Teachers like Gary Blandina, the autism coach and behavioral specialist. My main takeaway from that course was I need to be a better listener. We tend to listen to people to respond. I need to listen to people's stories and experiences and and put away judgment to authentically engage. Colton, Gary, and the other teachers in the Courageous Conversation program changed their teaching practices and got other teachers excited about the program. Some of them were in charge of creating equity plans for their schools. And what they did was make the Courageous Conversations course mandatory for teachers. It may seem counterintuitive, but participating in Courageous Conversations workshops was entirely voluntary for Colton and his cohort. Teachers were compensated for their time, but they opted to be there. Because of this ground-up approach, David Watkins says teachers were really able to make this work their own. 
having the teachers say that this is the most important course they've taken in a long time went a long way then in helping the district to allow the work to permeate in their school. Now all employees are required to take the course. Um, we've done this with our, our bus drivers and our food service workers, but also particularly with our clerical staff, who are the face and voice of our school. This is Broward County's fifth year of using Courageous Conversations, and it's been working pretty well for them. Those stats that Dan Gohl mentioned from 10 years ago are changing for the better. We have seen increased literacy. We have seen decreased discipline disparities. Can we source that to any one uh, program? No. But what we can say is the schools and the memberships that are participating in Courageous Conversations and engaging in the conversations sparked by participation are much more comfortable confronting the work that still has yet to be done. True to the protocol, there's never an endpoint for this type of work. So far, Courageous Conversations has allowed teachers to have a common language and a set of useful practices, but it's also helped the district address missteps. Recently, Broward County had to address a mistake they made regarding misinformation about Juneteenth. For schools and districts looking to do work around race, keep in mind there are no quick fixes or silver bullets. But for teachers like Colton, being able to courageously discuss race head-on makes them feel ready to tackle our world's most damaging problems. So I think the, the course really helped me have those internal tools, you know, whether I'm dealing with colleagues or dealing with students or content or whatever it might be. I keep this thing on my keychain. Uh, I've had it on there for four years and it has the different zones of courageous conversations, believing, you're thinking, you're acting and you're feeling. And it gave me uh, the tools to kind of move through this in a productive way. Thank you to Broward County Public Schools, Colton Griffith, Robert Runcie, Gary Blandina, David Watkins, Dan Gohl, Scott Travis, Glenn Singleton, and Alyssa Miller from AM Media Works for their participation in making this story happen. MindShift is produced by me, Nima Gobier. And me, Ki Sung. Our editor is Jessica Placek. Seth Samuel is our sound designer. Erica Aguilar is our head of podcasts. And Holly Kernan is KQED's chief content officer. If you love MindShift and enjoy this episode, please share it with a friend. It's the best way for people to find out about the show, and it helps us keep going. And if you want to share your thoughts on this episode, you can find us on Twitter at MindShiftKQED. Thank you for listening. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!
Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.